I mean, this is a practice and I think it's easy to be drawn into defining success based on external factors or external metrics, but I try to actively reject that temptation and focus more on whether I feel satisfied with the way I've spent my day or the way I'm spending my months or years. Practicing law can be really time consuming and taxing and I think it's critical to feel rewarded by and motivated and inspired by the things you're doing on a day-to-day basis. Hi, I'm Hallie Ritsu. And I'm Allison Friedman. And this is Personal Jurisdiction. A podcast where we get personal with lawyers about their journeys before, during, and after law school. Join us for season three as our guests share their behind the scenes reflections on the highs and lows of how they got to where they are today. Nathan Bretter is an attorney at the Federal Trade Commission in Washington, D.C. Before working at the FTC, Nathan was a trial attorney in the Antitrust Division at the U.S. Department of Justice. Nathan also clerked on the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals and the District of Maryland. He is a 2008 graduate of Boston University and a 2014 graduate of the Northwestern University Pritzker School of Law. We are thrilled to have Nathan joining us on the podcast today. Also, please note that all views reflected during this episode are Nathan's alone and do not reflect the views of the FTC. Thanks. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Personal Jurisdiction. We are so excited today to welcome Nathan Brenner to the podcast. Nathan is currently an attorney at the Federal Trade Commission and also one of our good friends from law school. So, Nathan, it's so great to have you on the podcast. Welcome. So good to see you. So good to be here. We start in the same spot with everyone, Um, so you will be no different. Can you tell us a little bit about your journey leading up to law school and how that influenced you in deciding that you actually wanted to go to law school? I know for you it wasn't a foregone conclusion, so what was that process like in kind of actually deciding you wanted to go to law school? Yeah, so when I graduated from college, I went to Boston University, and I was a little bit aimless at graduation, didn't really have a long-term plan for what I wanted to pursue as a profession. I did an internship on Capitol Hill for a few months. I worked for the Maryland State Attorney General's office doing healthcare advocacy, helping people basically fight health insurance bills that they wanted to dispute. And then just by chance, um, not even looking for this particular job in mind, I took a position as a mediator for a community dispute resolution center in upstate New York. And Basically, what we did is we helped people who were dealing with conflicts like it could be family conflicts like visitation or custody disputes. It could be small claims conflicts like a car crash or stolen goods or something like that. It could be workplace disputes or neighborhood disputes. And we tried to give people an opportunity to resolve those disputes outside of court through mediation. So I I worked there for about two years still not really with any plan in mind for what I wanted it all to lead to. But at some point in my time as a mediator, I realized that I found it a little bit unsatisfying not being able to actually offer solutions, especially with the style of mediation that we were practicing. We took a really hands-off approach. We tried to empower the participants to reach their own conclusions and solutions which I think can work really well in certain situations and for certain people, but I just wanted to do more. I wanted to kind of get in there and problem solve and offer creative solutions. So I started to realize that the people who had that kind of job were 
the attorneys who could advocate, uh, represent a client, really bring some problem solving to bear to reach a resolution. And so I started looking at law schools about two, two and a half years after I had graduated from undergrad. It's interesting that I feel like a number of our guests have had jobs in the interim for people who have taken time off between college and law school, where it was kind of like circling around something along the lines of conflict resolution or something like that and realized, and I have a very similar story, that you could actually potentially do more as a lawyer, which is what led people to law school. So it's interesting to hear that that was partly your journey as well. Yeah. And it's, It's funny, there were components of that job that I wanted to run away from, specifically the conflict that I witnessed as it related to family disputes. It was just too much for me. It was Mm -hmm. was too emotionally draining, sometimes really painful to to participate in or be so close to. And so I knew that that was too much for me, but there were other forms of conflict where I saw the benefit in sort of healthy, zealous advocacy from two opposing sides, working towards, sometimes actually working towards a resolution together, and other times letting the sort of advocacy process play out and working at odds with one another, but reaching an ultimate conclusion, either through mediation or if necessary in the court system. So I think that that job just got me comfortable being around most conflict and also inspired me to try to be part of the solution. One of the most, well, one of the many fun things about interviewing our friends on this podcast is one, hearing what brought everyone to law school, because I feel like we didn't talk about that necessarily in law school. And then the second is just kind of hearing your reflections on law school and kind of with a little bit of distance, what have been the formative experiences, what have been the things that maybe weren't so helpful about that experience. So even though we all went to wonderful Northwestern Law and graduated the same year. I'm curious, Nathan, what were those experiences during law school that you still look back on and say, that was great, or that really helped me, or that really wasn't very helpful, and here's why? I think the experiences that were most valuable and continue to be most valuable are the ones that put me in closest proximity and direct working relationships with my peers, with my class, with with you two, with other classmates at Northwestern. I mean, that's where I formed sort of long-term friendships that have been meaningful, both personally, socially, but also professionally at times, but also on a more practical level that gave me a lot of practice in basically working with, with peers, working with colleagues. And I'll speak specifically to working on journal, which I know a lot of law students really don't enjoy. I actually had a, a great time on the journal. Yeah. Callie and I worked together on journal, which, you know. Loved it. Yeah. <laughs> I I really enjoyed it. And also I worked on the uh, moot court board, putting on a moot court competition three all year. And I found sort of looking back, reflecting on that time, that those experiences essentially trained me to find ways to work with people who I did not actually supervise, you know, peers of mine, but I had to find ways to, in some cases, motivate peers to row in the same direction, like find a common mission and work together. And that has been applicable in my practice as a government attorney. I've never, I haven't worked at a firm other than as a summer associate, so I'm not sure how applicable this is in that context, but in the government, there's a very flat hierarchy 
most of my colleagues have the exact same job title I have with the exception of one or two managers. And so on any given case, I might be supervising colleagues who have 15 to 20 years of experience more than I do. And then two months later, the roles may flip and I'll be, I'll be sort of answering to them as the case lead. And I think, I think it was working on journal and on moot court where I got to practice and learned how to sort of empower my peers and get their buy-in and motivation and interest in the projects that we were undertaking. And I think that had I gone into those roles, sort of trying to demand things of peers, like fellow classmates, I would have fallen on my face. I would have been completely unsuccessful and damaged a lot of friendships. And I think what I learned how to do was to make us all feel like we were part of the same mission together. And I'll just add, I do think that's somewhat applicable to firms too. And Hallie, you know, I'd love to hear your experience as well. But at the firm I worked at, at least you were the owner of certain cases and you became the expert, particularly in a certain area. And so what you're saying is applicable to firms, at least some firms, I can't speak to, to more than the one I was at. But yeah, I think it's a really valuable skill and not something we've actually talked about on the podcast. So that's really interesting, just kind of seeking out experiences that allowed you to be with your peers, hang out with your peers, which is, of course, fun, but also be a leader among your peers as well. Yeah, it's like it's a really important combination of sort of leadership instincts and then also keeping your ego in check, uh, at least in my experience. I've That's what I've tried to practice is you have to have you have to have some instinct and inclination to lead towards some common goal, but recognize that if you make it all about yourself, it's going to be really hard for your colleagues to care as much as you do. And ultimately, you want everyone equally invested in reaching the ultimate outcome. And there's, like you said, there's kind of a give and take. And if if I take seriously assignments given to me by a colleague today, my hope is that tomorrow when the roles flip, my colleagues will I guess, treat me with the same sort of respect and and take seriously the assignments that I'm giving to them. So I think it's just about kind of building that rapport and trust with peers. I think that's an excellent reflection, Nathan, and not one that I've really thought about, but that certainly highlights a really great part of participating in certain things in law school, not just law review, although that's an excellent example, but also the moot court board that is something that you probably did because you really enjoyed it. You really enjoyed that process and had a great experience, but how you can really glean so many very helpful skills from that as well. I like that reflection a lot. Speaking of sort of relationships between peers, relationships among supervisors and uh, young associates and things. I'm curious about your thoughts on the relationships between judges and their clerks, in particular, because I know that you actually chose to clerk after hearing a judge talk about his relationship with his clerk. So if you can just back up and tell us what it was like to kind of hear from that judge and what was your thought process in deciding to clerk after law school? So I, I don't come from a family of lawyers, and so I didn't really understand what a clerkship was when I first started applying to law school. And I went to an admitted students weekend for, I think it was University of Minnesota. And I remember a district court judge from the District of Minnesota came in to speak to us, you know, an alum of the school. And he talked about 
what a federal clerkship meant, what that relationship meant. And it was it was eye opening. And basically what he described was that a clerkship is this completely unique professional relationship where you pair the wisdom and experience and instincts, intuition of a long practicing attorney, in some cases sort of towards the tail end of their career, or at least, you know, long into their career with the creativity and open-mindedness, eagerness of a brand new graduate. And that that's that pairing, that synergy is sort of what makes for the magic of like the judiciary that you've got these like well-resourced law firms and government practitioners coming in and litigating these cases. And then behind the bench, you've got a judge and their clerk. And in some ways they're totally outmatched, but it's that, it's that sort of special dynamic between judge and clerk that kind of facilitate clever, quick, but creative decision-making. I just thought it sounded so cool. And from that day, I decided, again, without really understanding what the process was going to be like, I decided that I at least wanted to clerk if I could. I love that. You did go on to clerk. You did both a district court clerkship in the District of Maryland and you clerked on the Fifth Circuit. So if you had to just have one or two reflections on your time clerking, looking back now, having some distance on it, what skills would you say from clerking have helped you most in your career in the government? So one one skill that I apply quite a bit is writing to your audience. And so when you're writing an opinion, your audience is pretty varied. Your audience might be the parties before you. Your audience might be the appellate court that it could be you know, appealed to. Your audience could be future litigants. And so in that case, I would think a lot about the clarity of my writing, you know, the precision of the outcome and the correctness of the outcome, but also the clarity of my reasoning so that, and by my reasoning, I should say, I mean, the judge's reasoning that I was, you know, trying to, to write on behalf of, but, you know, the clarity of the court's reasoning so that future litigants could understand and make use of the opinion. That was very different than, especially when I was on the circuit court writing bench memos, in which case my goal was to persuade my judge or oftentimes other judges, judges I didn't even, you know, the panel, the panel oftentimes included judges I didn't know or knew by, you know, reputation only. And so in that case, I had to sort of build up credibility and show the thoroughness of my reasoning. Oftentimes it wasn't about sort of definitive clarity about what the answer is, but was more about showing the comprehensive overview of the case law that I had done and that there wasn't sort of a rock left to be uncovered. I had I had done the work and these were the answers available and here's where I think we should go with it. So writing to your audience, I think is just so critical. And I've applied that in practice, whether I'm writing to a court, filing a motion, that's a very different situation than when I'm writing a letter to opposing counsel, which is a very different situation than when I'm writing a recommendation memo to my manager or to the commission at the Federal Trade Commission. Those are all really different audiences with different interests and tailoring to your audience is critical. The other thing, which is, I guess, somewhat related is recognizing your role as an attorney in, in whatever structure you're in. So clerking, my job was to advise the judge and put them in the best position to reach the right outcome. But at the end of the day, the judge signed their name to the opinion. I was not on the opinion. And so I had to accept that it was my job to advise vigorously. And when I disagreed, I made that disagreement known. 
But at some point, my job ended and a decision was made and my role concluded. I think some of that is true in government practice too, where, you know, my job is to advise the commission on an action to take. And at some point they get to make the decision. It's out of my hands. The one meaningful difference is that now I sign my name to filings and it's important to me that I feel comfortable with what I'm signing my name to. And so the dynamic is a little bit different now, but I still take the view that my job is to fight for what I think is right up until the point where a decision maker who has more authority than I do gets to make the call. And I need to be comfortable with that cutoff when it comes. I think it's great also that you're highlighting that there is a dynamic between judges and clerks that can be like a spirited debate back and forth. And I think that was one of my sort of favorite things about clerking and something that I actually didn't know would happen. (laughs) You know, I thought like I would research this thoroughly. And then, of course, the opinion is signed by the judge, as you said. And so it would kind of be like, okay, then the judge decides kind of how they want to do the case and that's it. But in reality, and different judges are going to have different ways of doing things. But I was so pleasantly surprised surprised and really enjoyed that aspect of clerking. And it's really interesting to hear how that has carried through to government work, although, as you said, with a bit of a different touch to it as well. I think, too, it is applicable to work in a firm as well, right? So if you're working in a litigation context, you know, your name may be on the pleadings or whatever you're filing, but it's certainly your role to work with your team to set forth an argument that you may have thoughts about. You should be willing to share those thoughts, making sure that you are researching and developing those thoughts so that they're adding value to the team and the team's consideration about what to do. And I think that is sometimes a really difficult position to be in, but great to think about how you can add value and contribute even if you aren't necessarily at the top of the list or the you know leader of the team in that circumstance. So Nathan, you mentioned a little bit earlier in our conversation today that you have spent your entire career in government. So we know that you clerked for two judges and then you, have, you were a part of the DOJ honors program and you started your career with the DOJ antitrust division as a trial attorney. How did you decide to start your career in the antitrust division? I don't have a very clear or direct answer to that question. I changed my career path, or at least what I was attempting to pursue as a career path at various points throughout law school. But at some point while I was clerking, I decided that I was interested in government and that I wanted to be a white collar prosecutor. And When I made that decision, I went through the process of looking at the honors program, hiring information on their website, and identified all the various components of the Department of Justice where white-collar prosecution seemed like a realistic possibility. And there are a lot of components that do a form of white-collar prosecution, the tax division, the criminal division, and the antitrust division, among others. But it, it can be a difficult field to get into early in your career. For example, my understanding is that if I were to go to a U.S. attorney's office, as an assistant U.S. attorney, it could take several years, five to 10 years before I would be given an opportunity to take on a white collar case. But if I landed in the antitrust division in a criminal section, I could sort of immediately begin taking on some of the most complex white collar conspiracies in the country, very well-resourced, well-represented 
defendants, subjects of our investigation, high profile conspiracies. And so I was intrigued by that possibility. I, it's been a long time, so I can't exactly remember my honors program application, but I think I, I think I preference the antitrust division first with the hope that I would land in a criminal section. And then I think I had the criminal division second as sort of a backup that, you know, maybe I could find my way into a criminal fraud unit or something like that. For those listeners who maybe haven't heard about the DOJ honors program, can you just give us a one or two sentence overview of what it is we've talked about on the podcast before, but just so we're all on the same page? The DOJ honors program sounds like a very fancy, unobtainable, I don't know, like honor. It's really just the entry level. (laughs) It's the name for entry level hiring for the Department of Justice. So you can apply to it either as a law student or as a law clerk. And maybe there are certain fellowships where you still qualify for the honors program. But really, it just means entry level hiring as opposed to lateral hiring, which is another way to come into the Department of Justice. Okay, awesome. Thank you. So you land in the antitrust division and you gave us an incredibly helpful explanation of sort of your view of the three different parts or aspects of antitrust, sort of how cases can move in different directions. So can you share that with us? Sure. I I thought it'd be helpful to start with at least my very high level explanation of what antitrust law is intended to do which is to promote competition for the benefit of consumers in the form of lower prices or higher wages, more choices, better quality choices. And when I say consumers, sometimes we're talking about end users, like the three of us purchasing goods from a store. But another way of thinking about protecting competition for the benefit of consumers is employees. So competition among employers benefits employees through higher wages, better healthcare benefits, better working conditions, things like that. So consumers can be understood broadly. In antitrust law, the way I think about it is there are kind of three buckets of enforcement. There is merger enforcement, which is when companies of a certain size decide to merge, they have to report their proposed merger to the FTC and the Department of Justice, the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, and the Department of Justice. And one of those two agencies will take a look and decide whether the merger has a a potential for harming competition down the road. So just as a hypothetical, imagine McDonald's and Burger King decide to merge together. They would file basically their proposal with the Department of Justice and the FTC, and we would take a look and decide whether we thought that would be harmful. With merger cases, you are attempting to essentially predict the future. So McDonald's and Burger King today operate independently. Post-merger, they're going to be one firm. Let's imagine that hypothetical future and try to predict whether prices will increase, quality of goods will decrease, innovation will decrease, things like that. In a conduct case, which is civil enforcement but not a merger, Rather than trying to predict the future, you're predicting or you're looking backwards. It's a retrospective on conduct that firms have been undertaking, and you're trying to assess whether that conduct harmed competition. So your typical monopolization case, that I would call a conduct case, you're looking backwards at the conduct of a firm and assessing whether it has been harmful to competition such that consumers have suffered. 
And then the third bucket is criminal enforcement. And criminal enforcement is basically conduct cases. So it's backwards looking, except it's very specific types of conduct cases that are so bad. And, and we have so much history knowing that these kinds of cases are bad that they can be prosecuted criminally. And so criminal antitrust cases always follow the flavor of horizontal agreements among competitors. So imagine with McDonald's and Burger King, rather than a merger, Imagine that the CEO of McDonald's and the CEO of Burger King got together and agreed to fix prices or allocate the market. So McDonald's gets the Western half of the country and Burger King gets the Eastern half of the country. Those are hypothetical cases which likely would be investigated under the criminal statute, section one of the Sherman Act, and would be investigated by one of the criminal sections at the Department of Justice. Well, I think you should teach a class on antitrust because (laughs) I learned more from you in those three to five minutes (laughs) than I think I knew about antitrust previously. So thank you. That was incredibly helpful. So at your time at DOJ, were you doing mainly civil trials, criminal investigations, some combination of those things? You know, what did your work look like while you were at DOJ? I was hired into the, one of the criminal sections. And so my job on paper was criminal investigations of large white collar antitrust conspiracies. So I worked on a big investigation involving shipping companies, companies that ship vehicles around the world, what's called row-row shipping, roll-on, roll-off shipping of vehicles, and then a couple of other large international, in some cases, smaller, more regional antitrust conspiracies. And so in that work, I was developing cooperating witnesses, using the grand jury to issue subpoenas or put witnesses in the grand jury, working with the FBI, putting together search warrant affidavits and executing search warrants, corporate and individual search warrants, preparing recommendations for charging decisions to to sort of facilitate the decision makers at DOJ to decide whether we should charge someone, and then also recommending sentencing decisions. And a big part of criminal enforcement is really thinking about how to uh, antitrust criminal cases are always conspiracy cases. And so a big part of the investigative strategy is trying to figure out how to flip people into cooperating with the government to help us uncover the, the bounds of a conspiracy. That was my job on paper. What ended up happening is two weeks before I started at DOJ, my boss emailed me to say that I was going to be detailed onto a civil merger trial team because the agency was strapped for resources. There were two big trials beginning, I think, at the same in the same week or around the same time, and they needed help. So I got I was it's called detailed. I was sent off to a civil section to work on a civil merger case instead. So Nathan, I want to go back to the time that you were thinking about going to DOJ and you were trying to decide which division to be in and what location you wanted to be in in the country. So you told us that you applied both in Chicago and DC. Can you tell us about a little bit about that interview experience and just kind of what kind of learning experience that was for you? I really wanted to go back to Chicago. I, you know, gone to law school in Chicago. It's the best. It's the best. best. Love Chicago. Love the food and the culture. It's just a great city. And so I had at the antitrust division, I had preferenced Chicago as my number one choice. And then DC is my number two choice. And 
I ended up getting offered interviews for both the Chicago office and the DC office. I had the Chicago interview first and it was a pretty thorough interview. It was with almost the entire office of like, I mean, through a series of panels, but it was maybe, I maybe met 20 people, including the three managers of that office. And I just kind of bombed it. I could tell that specifically I bombed the interview with the managers. I thought it had been going great <laughs> until the very last panel with the managers. Oh, no. And yeah, I just could, I just answered one question, not so well. And it kind of, I got nervous and then it all kind of fell apart from there. And so I went back to, I uh, was living in Mississippi at the time and I was working and went back and felt pretty confident that I had not landed that job. And then I think maybe like a week later, I had my DC interview, which was completely different. I met with three people for all of the DC offices, which Chicago has one office. In DC, there are eight or nine offices in the antitrust division. And for all of those different antitrust division offices, I only met with three people. And I had no idea how it went. I, I didn't think I had done terribly, but I didn't think I had done perfectly either. But as it turns out, I was offered the job in DC and not offered the job in Chicago. I was pretty upset at the time because again, I wanted to move to Chicago, but I think ultimately it turned out really well for me. I think I would have really enjoyed living in Chicago and and they have great people in that office, but I don't think I would have been put on the civil trial team right off the bat had I gone to Chicago. And really that experience uh, of being on the civil team that has driven my entire career because we haven't completely gotten to this yet, but I, I left the department of justice and moved to the federal trade commission where I now work almost exclusively on civil matters. Um, Mm -hmm. I've sort of left the criminal portfolio behind because I just enjoyed the civil work more. And I'm not sure I would have even known that had I not had, had I gone to the Chicago office. Yeah. We asked about that because it is a great example of how you can interview for essentially the same job twice and just have a different experience both times. And I'm sure maybe you still have nightmares about that experience or think about what you could have said differently. If you're anything like me, I still relive my life 10 years ago, but I also, I don't know about you. I also had the same experience in on-campus interviewing where you know, yeah. you're doing yes. 20 to 30 <laughs> back-to-back of the exact same screener interview and some of them went great. And then the other ones, they asked the exact same questions and somehow my answers got significantly worse. I got nervous. <laughs> <laughs> or the rapport wasn't as good between yeah. the people. Yeah. Like there are just so many factors you can't predict. And I think that's one of the big things that we like to highlight on the podcast is just that like if you want to do something, keep after it just because it may not work out the first time try again, or potentially you might discover something else that you really like. As you said, if you hadn't ended up going to DC, you probably wouldn't have ended up at the FTC. You may not have even known that you loved sort of the civil side of things more. So there's always kind of some silver lining, even though in the moment it can seem like the sky is falling. I think in very few circumstances, is it your only chance? And that's a good reminder of that. Yeah, I was going to say, I had colleagues at DOJ who, you know, I came in as an entry-level attorney, but I had colleagues who had tried to come in through the honors program and didn't, but then lateraled over after four or five years, or in some cases, one or two years at a firm. And, you know, we all ended up in the same place. We just had different paths to get there. 
Yeah, I have some friends, too, who, especially for government jobs, I know there are some offices where they literally don't accept anyone on the first try. And part of it is, like, the persistence of interviewing more than once to see if you really want the job. So <laughs> it may even be built into the process. <laughs> That's what was going on in Chicago. They just they just wanted me to come back. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> So Nathan, let's talk about your move to the Federal Trade Commission, where you're current, you've been there for almost three years, and you're attorney in the mergers group. So what is that like? How is that different from what you were doing at DOJ? So I moved into a group that in particular handles hospital and physician-related mergers, as well as mergers between like retail stores like office supply store, like Staples and Office Depot or grocery store mergers. And just because of the nature of the products that we're investigating, the types of mergers we're investigating, this group tends to litigate quite a bit, which is something that I was interested in. So since I joined, I have been involved in a number of merger investigations. I no longer work on criminal work, at least as my sort of formal job, but I'm, I'm just sort of like pouring over these like very hotly contested proposed mergers now. And sort of as promised, almost immediately upon my arrival, I ended up on a trial team trying to block a merger in Northern New Jersey between two health systems, two hospital groups. And we we succeeded, but it was, it was great. I, I was sort of brand new to the commission and was put on a trial team and like within a matter of months was cross-examining one of the defendant's experts and, putting on an adverse direct at the trial, arguing motions at the trial. So it's been a lot of fun. It's it's what I was looking for in terms of litigation opportunities. And so that's merger work. I'm currently detailed out of the merger group working on a conduct case. So I'm working on the FTC challenge or a lawsuit against Meta, formerly known as Facebook. Mm-hmm. And so we're actively litigating that matter in the District of DC. That That could go on for quite some time. You, as you just said, are on sort of a high-profile case. You also did some high-profile cases at DOJ. So what's it like to have a case that's sort of constantly in the news and there's lots of sort of speculation surrounding what's going on? Some of it might be right. Some of it might be totally wrong. What's that been like? Sometimes it's entertaining. It's fun to pick up the paper and and read an article about what's going on in the case you're in. And, and sometimes you learn some things through reporting that It's hard to find out through civil discovery, uh, which is kind of shocking, but reporters are good. At the same time, sometimes you're on the inside, you're living and breathing this case. And I think there have been times where I felt like they're missing the point or, you know, they got the story wrong. And, And I think, I think it requires some balance and some boundaries to be put up because the case is high profile, but the work that I'm doing is kind of independent for the most part of the reporting that's going on. And I just need to focus on what's in front of me and not get distracted by the noise. Having said that, there are, I think that there are benefits to working on matters that other people in the bar recognize. And I do think the very first case I worked on at DOJ was a merger, proposed merger between Anthem, which is the largest Blue Cross Blue Shield affiliate in the country, attempting to buy Cigna, which is another large insurance company, And I do think that having worked on a large high profile trial team early in my career was something that sort of 
opened up other doors for me as, as I've kind of advanced in my, my professional development. Ethan, what are the skills that you think are really important to you in your current position that either you developed during your time at DOJ or otherwise? One big skill is curiosity. In antitrust cases, a big part of the job is understanding the market that you're investigating. And so I'll just go back to the hypothetical I was using before. McDonald's and Burger King, a key question in that hypothetical merger is going to be whether the market is burger fast food restaurants or if it should be broadened to like include fried chicken restaurants or if it should be broadened to include Starbucks and other fast food chains or if it should include all restaurants in the country. Like, However you cut the market will completely change your view of the case and whether the merger is harmful. And so to come to a conclusion on that question, you have to call people in the market. Like you have to call other competitors. I would call KFC and Wendy's and Starbucks and ask them what they thought of the merger. Or I would call some of the meat suppliers that sell or potato suppliers that sell to McDonald's and Burger King and try to understand how they view the market. Or maybe I'd call some consumer interest groups to find out how they view the market. And so genuine curiosity, like an interest in learning about a business that you might not know anything about is, I think it's helpful to have that. I also think that if you have that, that's one of the great perks of being an antitrust lawyer is that from case to case, you get to learn about an entirely new industry. So I learned about the international shipping industry. And then I learned about the pay TV cable industry when I worked on the AT&T Time Warner merger. And now I'm working about social media companies, social networking. So that's fascinating. I think another critical skill is being collaborative, being interested in teamwork. These are big cases, both on, both on the criminal side and the civil side. These are big team-oriented cases and wanting to work with other people valuing communication and shared responsibility. Those are really, really helpful skills and a really helpful attitude to bring to the job. Nathan, you've already made your job sound so awesome in so many ways. This is one of the reasons why we love doing this podcast because Hallie and I afterwards are always like, oh man, we want to do that job to everyone who comes on the podcast. But I'm curious, just because you've spent your whole career in government, what is it about government work that really intrigues you and keeps you interested and has kept you working for the government for the entirety of your career? I really like the mission oriented view of the work that, you know, the work I'm doing on this case is important for this case, but it's also important for the next 10 years of enforcement. And so one thing I really like about the hospital mergers that I've worked on at the FTC is, you know, those are not national headline mergers or international headline mergers. Those are very regionally significant transactions, but they litigate a lot more frequently than other industries tend to go to trial. And as a result, a lot of the case law that's been developed in antitrust, both at the district court and at the circuit court level, comes out of these hospital mergers, including the case that I litigated last summer. We went up, the defendants appealed to the Third Circuit, and we got a favorable you know, affirmation at the Third Circuit. And now suddenly, Third Circuit case law is born out of you know, this trial team that I was on. So I love when I'm working on a case I really enjoy when the conversation turns from how do we position ourselves to win this motion 
or to win, you know, to put on the best testimony from this witness. I like when it pivots to, are we thinking about how this could be used against us in five years? Do we, do we think that this is the right decision just for this case? Or is this the right decision for the investigations that are currently underway or the investigations we haven't even started yet? So I, I love that long view. I love the mission oriented work. I also think, and I, you should correct me if I'm wrong about this because I haven't worked at a firm, but I feel like not having to account for my time maybe permits a little more water cooler talk at the office about cases that I'm not on. Yes, and absolutely. so, yeah, I really love walking down the hall and stopping into someone's office and saying, what are you working on? And then mm-hmm. just kind of brainstorming and it doesn't, maybe it'll help my case. Maybe I'll learn something that I'll apply, but really it's just, we're interested in this area of law and we like to help each other. And I, I find that really rewarding. I love that. And that feeds the curiosity part of what you love about the job too, right? It just, it doesn't have to be that you're seeking some kind of argument that's going to help you with something that's in front of you. It's just that you genuinely enjoy this area of the law and it's fun to be able to share that with people that you work with. And I, I would definitely agree that lack of billable hour helps, helps with that. Allison and I have both mostly given up the billable hour life and it is definitely an improvement on our lives. <laughs> so Nathan, thinking a little bit more about kind of the long game, but in a different context, if we're thinking about what advice you have for law students in general or law students who are thinking about potentially going into government work, what would you tell them? One thing that I did not do, but wish I had done as a student is more reaching out to practitioners and just like cold calling, cold emailing people and asking to get coffee just to understand what their day-to-day is like. You know, candidly, I don't think I really understood what an antitrust lawyer was until I had done it for probably a year. And then I kind of looked back and realized what I had been spending my time doing. So that's one thing that I wish I had done, I think is very valuable probably listening to the personal jurisdiction podcast is a helpful. Well, obviously yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I recommend that to everyone. <laughs> I didn't have this when I was a student. I, we didn't talk about this when, when reflecting on law school, but one of my other big regrets from law school is that I didn't do a clinic and I really wished I had, I think that that would have been helpful, not specific to government practice, but more generally if you're interested in litigation, I think doing any kind of clinical work um, with a litigation oriented practice would be really helpful. I think for my kind of work, taking a course in like complex commercial litigation or something along those lines would have been helpful. I didn't do it, but I think it would have helped me. Same with like an e-discovery course. And then if there are courses on like government investigations, I think that would be really helpful as well. And I imagine that there are courses that cover both civil and criminal government investigations that would help kind of give you a broad overview of the work that agencies do on a day-to-day basis. Like I said at the beginning, we start with the same question for everyone and we also end on the same question for everyone. So as our listeners will now know, the last question for you is what does success mean to you? I think success is like satisfaction personal satisfaction. So I try, I mean, this is a practice and I think it's easy to be drawn into defining success based on external factors or external metrics, but I try to actively reject that 
temptation and focus more on whether I feel satisfied with the way I've spent my day or the way I'm spending my months or years. Practicing law can be really time consuming and taxing. And I think it's critical to feel rewarded by and motivated and inspired by the things you're doing on a day-to-day basis. And maybe that's a little bit of a squishy answer, but I think that I think that personal satisfaction is, in my opinion, the sort of like broadest reaching, but maybe one of the healthiest approaches to defining success. And I, it's, it's what I try to practice. It's my aspiration. I'm glad you reminded us about law being a practice. And I think that can be applied to so many things in our lives, right? Just kind of always doing our best to reflect on how things are going not just day to day. I mean, some days no one has it together, but week to week, month to month, year to year, if you're, if you're personally satisfied with what you've been doing and how you've been growing both personally and professionally. So as always, excellent advice, Nathan, and so fun to talk to you. Thank you for joining us on Personal Jurisdiction. We really appreciate your sharing your career journey and your expertise on antitrust. We know it's going to be super helpful to our listeners. So thank you so much. Thanks so much for inviting me and really appreciate what you're doing with the podcast. Thank you. Don't go away. There's more to come in the due diligence portion of our show. All right, so we are back for due diligence after our lovely conversation with Nathan Brenner. So, Hallie, tell me, since we chatted with Nathan, what have you been thinking about? I have been thinking about something Nathan said about clerkships. And we didn't talk with him a lot about his clerkship experience, but I think something that he shared with us really is applicable to so many different things in the law. And he told us that before he started law school, he had some insight into the clerkship process and what stuck with him or what made him excited about the potential for a clerkship is the relationship that you get to have with a judge and building that relationship, that learning relationship and getting to kind of practice and get a different perspective about the practice of law throughout that experience. I thought that was one, just a lovely Mm -hmm. way to think about it and how exciting that that was kind of one of his first experiences or things that he learned about the practice of law and the potential things that you can do during or after law school, but also that it is really applicable to a lot of the different relationships that we can have in the law. And so if you maybe think about coming into law school and focusing on building great relationships with your classmates, focusing on building great relationships with professors and with mentors and people you work with throughout internships or other job experiences, I think you'll have a richer experience both during law school and after because you have such a great community of people that you can go back to, that you can seek advice from. And that's one of the great things about the practice of law. I know back 
in season one, (laughs) we talked about the fact that I was going out on my own and starting my own firm and working by myself and whether that would be lonely. Mm -hmm. And, you know, now that I'm kind of about a year into it, I can say it's certainly different than working at a firm and having going into an office every day and having people around all the time. But I do think that having spent the time to build a great network has made that less lonely and actually even better because I can reach out to people both at my old firm and from law school and people I've met along the way who have been really helpful as sounding boards, as resources. And so that's, I mean, it's kind of a, (laughs) there is a link there, Allison. There is a link. So that's what. (laughs) I got you. I got you. That's what I, I was thinking about from our conversation with Nathan and some of the fun memories that we had, even just with him as a friend in law school and thinking back to that time too. Well, it's great and he to catch is, up. it just shows that keeping up our network helps to have him as a guest, right? Definitely. Like, so, you know, we've just kept up over the years. And of course, we're friends, but got to learn a lot more about his job. So that brings me to the thing that I was thinking about, which Perfect. is just learning a lot more about his job. So antitrust is obviously an incredibly complicated area of the law. Yes. So, you know, if it's something that you're thinking about taking that antitrust class, probably a good idea. But also genuinely listening to this episode and Nathan's explanation of the various types of sort of antitrust work. He outlined sort of three different pieces, the criminal antitrust enforcement, the merger enforcement, which is kind of more prospective, and then what he called conduct cases, which were more Mm -hmm. sort of retrospective looking. And I know that Hallie and I, you know, neither of us have practiced antitrust. So we learned quite a bit from him. And I just appreciated the very straightforward and simple way he was able to break down an extremely complicated area of the law. Of course, there are many nuances in there. But, you know, I think listening to this episode, if antitrust is something you're interested in, hopefully was really helpful. It was certainly helpful to us. Yeah, he did a great job breaking that down and explaining the different parts of that practice. There are so many different things that you can do in that practice. And I I really had no idea anything would make a great teacher because he clearly (laughs) has an excellent way of, of conveying that information in a simple way. Well, I think that brings us to the end of our due diligence for this episode. And thank you all for tuning in. We will see you next week. We'll see you next time. Personal jurisdiction is powered and distributed by Simplecast. You don't have to wait until next week to hear more. You can find us online at personaljxpod.com and on Twitter at personaljxpod. Don't forget to subscribe to Personal Jurisdiction on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you like to listen so that you can be updated on the latest and greatest from Personal Jurisdiction. If you like what you hear, make sure to rate us five stars and leave a positive review so that other listeners can find our show too. 